0: This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, which is a collaboration bringing together expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. And this particular episode is an extract from a book launch with Aalborg University researcher Paulina Stolz talking to me, Duncan McCargo. I'm the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and professor of political science here at the University of Copenhagen. And we're discussing. Paulina's new book, Gender Resistance and Transnational Memories of Violent Conflicts, which is a book about how memories of violent conflicts that took place in Indonesia decades ago still continue to have an impact today, both in Indonesia and in other parts of the world. This is an academic book, Paulina, but I was also struck from the very opening pages by the fact that it's an academic book that begins with a personal story. You've had a very international life coming from the Netherlands, living much of your life in Sweden, teaching in Denmark, but you also have this family connection to Indonesia. So perhaps you could tell us something about the personal story behind the book and how you came to to write it.
1: Well, it is a bit like you say, I, I'm a bit from all over the place, if you want to. And the thing about writing this book is that there were a lot of things that I didn't know and I wanted to know something more about. And I felt that I needed to know more about it. They had a lot to do with my family. And like you said, my family, I'm born in the Netherlands and, and my mother's part of the family is from Indonesia. We, we mixed race, Dutch, Indonesian and other types of, of backgrounds. And the thing is, my mother was born in 19. 19- 1935 in Jakarta. And she had a white Dutch father who had moved to Indonesia, uh, worked in the military, met my grandmother, who was a teacher at one of the uh, schools there and headed that school for a while. And they had four children. And my mother was one of them. And then he died three months later after my mother was born. She lost her father. So that was 1935. And the thing is, it took me a really long time in my life. I was like in my 30s. Before I realized that when my mother was young, there were two wars going on. And I didn't know anything about those wars. I knew that my grandmother and those four children and some other relatives as well had moved to the Netherlands in 1950. But I didn't know that much about Indonesia, about the Japanese occupation of the Dutch Indies. Indonesia was a Dutch colony at the time. And then when the Japanese lost the war, Indonesian nationalists who declared independence from the Netherlands immediately overnight so the conflict continued for a couple of more years so throughout the 40s you had all this war going on and my mother and my relative lived in that and I didn't know anything about that that sounds really weird but that that was kind of a starting point for this book and the thing is as well that that you can always say that while you have relatives that don't talk fine. But then you have a whole society around you that can speak about, I knew that somewhere that the Japanese had occupied the Dutch Indies, right? I knew that there had been a war going on, that Indonesia was independent. I just didn't make the connection between the two. And why was it that I didn't make that connection? So one of the things that happened in the 1990s was that I read this novel. And it was a novel called Indische Duine by Dutch author called Adrian van Dies. And he talked about his family that was quite similar. That whole narrative was quite similar. But he was also very upset about that. He didn't know anything about that. And suddenly I was like, hold on, you're talking about me here. And there is, there is something fishy about not knowing because that was what he was struggling with. As well. Why don't I know anything? Whom can I ask? Should I ask my relatives? Is there anybody else in society that I can ask about this? Because it has to do with me. And then, I'm a political scientist by training, and I've always been working from a gender perspective, so I'm interested in politics. And one of the things that I realized eventually was also that you have within political science this whole idea about non-decision making governments that do not take any decisions about an issue and i was a bit like why aren't there any decisions about the violence that took place then and how they are remembered there are all kinds of issues in dutch society that are related to for example inequalities and racism and things like that so, why is nobody talking about the Indonesian past in relation to that? why about weren't there any there must have been a lot of violence weren't there human rights abuses and the thing is there is this whole there is this if you go back twenty years ago or so there started to emerge a lot of interest in terms of how you relate to that, to genocides, to mass violence. And you had that already directly after the Second World War. in So for example, the genocide con- convention. So you have, but these norms became stronger and stronger and stronger. So I started to wonder why nobody reacted and why that connection between why I didn't know anything and why nobody reacted. And wasn't there any resistance towards all these silences? And what I pres- Assumed were denials of responsibility for things that happened that were done by both parties in Indonesia and in the Netherlands. That is more where I started. Right. For me, yes. for me, that the starting point of knowledge there were novel.
0: Right. This is the next thing I was going to. Uh ask you about because the title Paulina you know we've got gender resistance transnational memories of violent conflicts but well I'm a southeast asianist so I was kind of looking for the word Indonesia in there and sort of the Netherlands could have been mentioned in there and then transitional justice actually keeps popping up and then there's the novels and the fiction stuff and then a theme of denial and as you just said you're really interested in politics so why are these words in the title and not all those others because for those who haven't read the book there's an awful lot going on here how do you decide that the words you wanted to highlight? You don't have a subtitle either. There's a lot going on in your book, dispensed with the, the luxury of a subtitle. So well, can you just say something about that? that, especially about the fact that you use literature as a frame, but you don't really, hi- an Indonesia as a subject matter, but you don't really highlight that in the
1: title. Coming up with titles is really difficult. And I like subtitles, but I also think that they come too much. You, you don't remember them anyway. Okay. So if you have a title, keep it short and sweet, I think. Mm. The reason why I used these words was very much that those were the key things that I wanted to put in focus. And then the other things that you mentioned about very much are partly in the background and that also has a lot to do with how I started to do research because working with novels as a political scientist is perhaps not the most obvious source to go to if you go to memory studies you have a lot of people from the humanities and from literature they are the ones that really know a lot about uh, novels and, and literature And I was very reluctant to do anything with that. And then at the same time I had, but one of the only sources that I could find initially were actually those novels. And what Mm. is good about those novels is that they gave me an opportunity to link all these personal narratives of people that in different ways tried to resist silences. They wanted Mm. to resist denials and was an an everyday type of resistance. And it took many different different shapes and forms. So how then was that related to the narratives that you could see are present about how uh, people in the Netherlands look at themselves? How, as a collective, as a society, and the same in Indonesia, but also globally, how do we think, we in the world think about how we should deal with the past? Now, I didn't want to put in the novels because I didn't want to push the novels to make people think that I was from literature. The word resistance and violent conflict really pushes the politics of the memories. For me, it took a really long time to figure out how I would combine this knowledge from novels with, for example, what I could find out about what the Dutch governments had been doing over the decades, what Indonesian governments had been doing, what the UN had been doing. And then when I had started to figure that out, I was like, how interesting is that? Well, perhaps that is not the main issue here. That politics goes on somewhere else as well. And if you go to international relations at the moment and to peace and conflict studies, there is also this practice turn, this turn to looking at things that are everyday, that in many ways represent the everyday experiences of War and what happens after conflict. So that's why words like transitional justice get in the background because I think it would it would signal something else that I would, than what I was trying to do, right. including that I tried to bring together these political and legal aspects that you can find in international relations with actually these memory studies that are very interdisciplinary as well, and definitely including social scientists like myself, but are still very dominated by people from the humanities. And I tried to bring that together, which right. also means that the book series is covering both. So I was really happy
0: Yes. booksearchs. Yes, Now, as somebody who started off in English literature and took a wrong turning and ended up uh, passing myself off as a political scientist for some time. I understand the feel <laughs> of the novels. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about them the four novels and briefly maybe give us an example of one of the novels and why the novels are so invaluable as a way into this topic that you've been exploring in the book.
1: Well, if we can take the example of I had like two Indonesian and two Dutch novels I started out with the Dutch novels and Mm -hmm. for a long time I thought I'll I'll keep it at the discussion about what is going on Mm -hmm. in the Netherlands and with these Dutch novels and then I found out that there's no way I can talk about conflicts in Indonesia and not let have Indonesian voices be Mm -hmm. there. Even if it really felt difficult for me because that was something that belonged to my mother and not to me. So it it took a while before I dared do that. So the first novel that I talked about was the novel by Adrian van Dis. And the way I work with that novel is to uncover these ideas of what is silence here? Why is it that people in the Netherlands walk around and say that they don't know anything about what happened in Indonesia. What is that all about? Is that really silence or don't they really know? And for me, that was what his book did when he talked about, this is an autobiographical novel, but it is very much a novel. It is about this man who has been born in the Netherlands and his mother and sisters had moved from Indonesia, having pretty much the same background as I had. I had been through these wars and he is trying to figure out what had happened right so what he does in this novel is in the 1990s when the novel came out two of his sisters were uh, sick in cancer one of them died but around that time they start to talk to each other about what happened in the past what you then get is that he tries to figure out what had happened to his father who was a military a prisoner of war etc but also What I found more interesting, what happened to his sisters and mother who had been in a Japanese uh, camp and might or might not have been, for example, the victim of sexual violence. So he tries to trace that. And from his position, as this, he he is described as a journalist, as a well-known journalist, so he can access people in quite easy ways. There are certain things that he very easily can find out if he really starts to search. For example, it's very easy to find things about the ship that his father was on and that almost sank and where it ended up. There are records which you can trace. It was a lot more difficult. This is my reading of the novel. It was a lot more difficult to figure out how his sisters, for example, had gone through conflicts and their experiences. And he had one sister that wanted to talk a lot and the other that didn't and the one that didn't, there was the suspicion of sexual violence. So what you get then is this discussion of can you talk to a brother who hasn't been there about these issues. Can you talk as a woman to a man about sexual violence? Because you don't necessarily want to do that. You can't protect yourself from, anybody, from talking to anybody about it. That can be a form of protection. And then there are other people that really want to talk a lot. So this whole notion of silence has different layers, because silence can be very much an agency of this sister, for example. She can use it as protection against things she she wants to deal with herself and only do that with people deal with that with people that she trusts which means that whereas it at the same time also can be a protection of perpetrators Silence can protect perpetrators as well. But notions of voice, of speaking up, of telling, can, there are nuances to that. There are nuances to whether voice is good, is necessary, or if it is bad and not something that is desirable. So, and those nuances, you can have thoughts about on a personal level, such as in in this novel, when you have these relatives talking to each other or not. You can also link that, to whole societies. Like what should societies talk about or not? What is forgotten or not? Why is it forgotten? And is it really forgotten? Or are there perhaps stories that nobody wants to listen to? They're marginalized. And so in that particular novel, that was the big thing. That was the issue about silence and about also saying that, well, here we have people that have moved from one part of the world to another. And maybe in that other part of the world, nobody wants to listen to them because they, we have other things going on, and in the Netherlands, for example, that was related to a different part of the Second World War, where the Germans had occupied the Netherlands, and a lot of things for a long time were focused towards the ways in which Dutch resistance fighters had fought the Nazis, because that was a story of heroes instead of of perpetrators. And this whole idea of that people and societies are either victims or perpetrators, I really challenge that in this volta because that is extremely simplistic and the universalizing of feelings against groups of people also, because all of them should be in one way. That doesn't really help if you want to move forward.
0: I'm, I'm familiar from, with that kind of problem too, in looking at Cambodia, where I lived for a year and have precisely the same kinds of debates about how can you distinguish between victims and perpetrators. And we know that many of the people who we see pictorialized in the Tulsa Sleng Museum were in fact members of the regime and participated. Participated in the abuse of other people or even the murder of other people or well, they were killed. kill. It's these very very dark and there's something about the novel that helps you with the personal stories and the narrative focus to memory to explore some of those nuances and of course ambiguity which is at the core of a lot of this and that comes through very clearly from your book. So the first word, going back to the title which I'm obviously overly fixated with, the first word of your title is gender. You've mentioned gender a few times and you obviously think of yourself perhaps almost primarily as a scholar of gender. So what's the gender piece here? What does the gender lens add or, or bring to this discussion about all of these other key words that you were talking about?
1: Well, if we say that one of the things that really struck me was that uh, when you talk about victims or perpetrators, or for that matter, bystanders or observers that you have one-dimensional ideas about, or if, and that's the same when you talk about gender, it can become very simplistic. Here we have the women and all of them are victims. Here we have the man, and all of them are perpetrators. And if you go to Gender studies or, or gender perspectives upon political science, for example, one of the things that are very valuable with that tradition is that it has developed tools that can uncover nuances in narratives like that, intersectional approaches, queer approaches. Where you go like, okay, if we look at the conflict in Indonesia, and the thing is, you asked earlier about why Indonesia wasn't in the title, but a lot of uh, you are immediately reacting like, uh, I had another conflict that it fits with. The good thing about these gender approaches, I think, the intersectional approaches, the queer approaches, is that they can uncover these inequalities, these marginalizations that can be quite structural and quite old as well and linger on from periods when there was more direct conflict to transformations where there is less but when you, these marginalization still can be recognized and still can be quite problematic and still in need of attention because you have people that suffer on them uh, so the word gender in the title is a way of Pointing towards those types of approaches, because I also think that there are a lot of things that are a lot of research about Indonesia and about the different conflicts, not only the ones in the 1940s, but also the genocide that took place in 1965 that is really prominent in a lot of Indonesian research, a lot of good things are being done there. But it is not necessarily done from... If it is done from a gender approach, very often it becomes from the perspective of women, women as gender, and that is way too simplistic, I think. So these intersectional approaches, these queer approaches, can help say that, look, not all the women are the same, not all the men are the same. This also has something to do with other categories. It has something to do with categories of race of nationality it can have to do with categories of generation of sexuality and what is it we are talking about this particular aspect of this particular conflict or how they are related to each other that makes that we come further in our thinking about strategies for the future if we have a more nuanced discussion about who the victims are, and that they at the same time can be perpetrators, or different periods of their lives, they are one or the other, or both, how can we bring those nuances in, in order to look forward? And that is both, I think that that is a contribution to studies in transitional justice, as well as memory studies, where much more work needs to be done. And in that sense, I also hope that people that are interested in other conflicts will read. The book and find some inspiration in it because it, it's never been my intention to come with for example I can walk around here and say that uh, I don't understand why people aren't reacting oh by the way now I found some people who have reacted but nobody's listening to them coming from there and then saying that this is the exact solution to how everything will be all right, everything will be solved. That's not my intention because I don't think that works. And if you look at, for example, research in transitional justice, there's quite a broad agreement that you can't have this one policy, for example, that fixes everything everywhere all the time. Uh, you, you, you need to kind of figure that out in individual cases and then really try your way forward. But I think by bringing in these nuances in the analysis of the way in which societies transform, how memories of the past not only can be found within Specific societies. I mean, it's very clear that what happened in Indonesia during these three conflicts also affected people in other parts of the world. And in the Netherlands as well, it's very difficult to think about the Netherlands and then just ignore that there was a colonial history or that there there were any connections at all. So you need to give it a place. And as a global society, I think it's also important to say that while there were human rights abuses, throughout the three conflicts that need attention why hasn't there been more attention towards them that is also I mean this one of the things that I found interesting these days because I stopped this study in 2015 the period that I cover in the book is until from 1942 when the Japanese occupied the Dutch Indies until 2015 when there was a commemoration of 70 years of Indonesian uh, independence. And it was 50 years since the genocide of 65. So that was a moment in time when there suddenly became more interest, there became more political attention. What I find interesting today, five years later, is the way in which, for example, Black Lives Matter have made that a lot of these issues have become extremely topical, brought up discussions uh, all over, like how do we relate to racial injustice in different parts? Where did that come from, that racial injustice? What did it have to do with colonialism? But also, I think that a lot of the discussions about what happened in 1965 mm-hmm. have come up in a different way now.
0: Yes, Well, let's, let's uh, jump to the end, if we can. Paulina, well, you know, yesterday we had a conversation. You said the book, in a way, is a think piece, which set me, set me off thinking again about my uh, reactions to it. You don't have a concluding chapter per se. The last chapter sort of ends in its. Yeah. Sense, and some readers might be forgiven for feeling for, you know, slightly left hanging. So, and I was hoping that, I, you know, I do like this kind of framing idea. You're going to go back at the end to. The personal journey that you start at the beginning and and tell us something about how having gone through these novels, looked at these three different conflicts, looked from these different perspectives and used up these different conceptual and theoretical frameworks, had you reached any conclusions yourself about questions that you were trying to answer personally or would you want to end the book in terms of setting a future agenda for other people's research? So what kind of concluding remarks might you make, at least orally, if not at the end of the book itself, especially if you have some, some thoughts about how to link where you started? With
1: yeah. This is a book that took a very long time to write. So it's ironic that in that sense, I didn't end it with a conclusion and and a personal note in the end as well. That also made that the publishers were like, we want the manuscript now. (laughs) (laughs) We know you can go on forever, which, sure, and that also had to do with issues about marketing in relation to this year where you have these commemorations of 75 years of Indonesian independence so could it be related to things like that perhaps which make a lot of sense and which I uh, absolutely could agree with but it did mean that I got into uh, problems with my timing in the end and was like okay I'm not going to be able to keep their deadline like, oh, that is a very pragmatic answer to why it looks the way it does. Right, I but just for us. Yes. I, I, I can, of course, say something now. So... Um, No, like I said, in terms of there not being any... uh, I don't want to point out this is the strategy that people should be taking. In terms of research agendas, I do think it would be very good if people within transitional justice research and memory studies would take on intersectional and queer approaches a lot more than they're doing. Because I do see, when I, I think that happens slightly more in transitional justice research, and peace and conflict research, feminist security studies, it happens more there than in memory studies where I think that there's definitely a need of, of going further with that and where I think I give some some tools to continue discussions that have started there. That includes that the whole notion of transnational memories, which I haven't been talking too much about today, but that actually is also one of those up-and-coming research areas that is potentially very important i think because it does point out the way in which we think about connections between different parts of the world and how we should think about it in also in a very practical manner now on a personal note since you asked about that as well this has been a process of mourning so let's keep it at that
0: yes now that makes total sense thank you so much how does experienced gender resistance and transnational memories of violent conflicts affect when these women are migrated to a democratic society, such as, I'm just abbreviating slightly, such as in Europe, how can we influence their memories and break down their silence that they're still wary about these experiences in the confine of their home without talking to anybody? I mean, these memories of strict patriarchal norms being normalized within these women and worse still, all the violence that they're experiencing here in Europe. Uh, how should they be convinced and encouraged to talk? So, trans- transplanting to the European context.
1: And, like I said, there can be a lot of strength in not talking as well mm-hmm. and talking only to the people with whom you feel safe. So to say that, per definition, the experience would be one of you you need to talk. Well, that depends. If people do not want to talk, can be good reasons that they can manage anyway. Now, it is not necessarily the case that everybody that doesn't talk also necessarily relate that to very patriarchal things. It can also have a lot to do with racist structures that make that you don't want to talk. And in, for example, the book, the person that didn't talk moved to another country as well because they didn't really like the society, the Dutch society, in which uh, they found that they couldn't breathe. So they went somewhere completely different. They moved to Canada. I find it really difficult to say something that general about individual people. And that is also because I'm not a psychologist that works with individual people. I'm a political scientist that looks at the political dimensions of it, and then it becomes more a matter of what kind of politics are going on. The link from going to between people that have individually are vocal and protest in their families, in their uh, neighborhoods, there's not necessarily a direct link between that and participating in organized resistance in in organizations or, or movements that are like, okay, the government should do this or that. The other, but that is more or less what I'm trying to trace as well. How do these mechanics help? But it's very difficult to give a straight answer to that question because, like I said, I try to figure out the nuances of those silences when is there agency, when is there not.
0: Yeah, I should have said, by the way, that question came from from Malia. I don't have another one in there right now, but I have more questions I wanted to ask myself. And you did touch on this, but maybe you could explain a bit more. Particularly in Chapter 6, you talk about applying queer theory, destabilising regimes of the normal, and querying narratives of national identity. And I found that very intriguing. To see, kind of gender, method. Could you just explain a bit about this idea of sort of transforming our understandings of what is normal and applying that to an idea? Like, because you're appropriating a, an idea from one area and very much deploying it in a way that might be unfamiliar to some people. So it's very playful. So perhaps you could explain a bit about how that works.
1: Well, that particular chapter is, if we think about national identity, how do we think about it when we in Indonesia, which is what this chapter is about, Indonesian national identity and nation building. The thing with that particular chapter is that it is based on a book by Mangu Vijaya, who wrote a book called Durga Demaji, and I have it here mm-hmm. as well. This was written in the 1990s, and that particular book is trying to deal with the history of Indonesia from the 40s until that time. So it covers all the three conflicts that I've been talking about. Now, these conflicts have been tearing apart Indonesian society in different ways. You had the Japanese coming. You had the Dutch there and disappearing. You had the genocide of 65, where there was a genocide upon people that were communists or accused of being communists. In the middle of the Cold War, where there were all kinds of ties to the US and other parts of the world, but where it still was very much an Indonesian affair. And in the 1990s, Indonesia had a military dictatorship, which had started after that particular genocide. Military had taken charge. So it wasn't that easy to be critical of that particular uh, regime, because you could end up in trouble. And there were a lot of people that ended up in trouble. And it was still extremely anti left anti communism He wanted to think about how could Indonesia, as a society, move forward? What would you need? How would we need to think? And the only way he could think about it is to say that, well, we are all of this. We are both good and bad. We are partly Dutch because we have been colonized by the Dutch. And we're partly communist and partly not communist. And we're perpetrators. We're victims. We're all of this. We're bystanders. We're the lot. So in a sense, he was trying to be very inclusive, if you wanted, during a period where inclusivity was not very wanted. So he couldn't speak out openly. What queer theory does is say that instead of these binaries, men, women, and communist and anti communist and perpetrator etc how about thinking about all these things as fluid as what the norms are think about outside those norms think about how we can rethink what is normal. What what he tries to do in this particular book by challenging what is normal at that time during the military regime is to rethink Indonesian identity by creating a main character who encompasses all these identities and changes these identities. And he does that in a very playful and very intriguing way that is very difficult to explain very shortly, (laughs) but using traditions of Wayang theater and a tradition of telling stories in Indonesia where you can consider different political and moral issues by means of puppets and then at the same time telling the history of Indonesia on another level. So it's a very intricate novel in that sense. But I do think that the queering, thinking outside of the box, thinking outside of what is normal in order to say that we should all be able to move forward, there can that particular type of approach help a lot. And he is trying to do that. Right.
0: Another realm of ambiguity or intersection which you go into quite a bit in places in the book is the question of what is it to be implicated in. and obviously we we ask ourselves questions like those of us who grew up in western european countries how far are we implicated in the colonial projects that preceded us so that, that were carried out by maybe our family members and maybe not but the countries that we currently live in and are citizens of or in the indonesian case how far are people implicated in the events, say, of 1965, which they may not have actively participated in, but nevertheless, on some level, were a party to. Could you talk a little bit about this complication of the notion of being implicated? Because, again, we might tend to assume that you either are or are not implicated, and it's not that there are more and more possibilities in that room.
1: Well, in a sense, if we say that human rights are really important, around the world we subscribe to that then we should in a sense also subscribe to when then we should go after breaches of that and in that sense we are all implicated in seeing to it that that happens that is one very uh, simple way of talking about it when it comes down to it a lot of us or any of us we cannot be interested in everything everywhere all the time That's just not possible. And that makes it also interesting to see how come that certain conflicts get a lot of attention and others do not. So that is where my question in the the study also comes up. Because, for example, the genocide in 1965 in Indonesia happened at more or less the same time as there were a lot of struggles going on in Vietnam. And there was so much global attention to what was going on in Vietnam, but there was not a lot of attention to what was going on in Indonesia. And it wasn't as if people didn't know. I mean, you can trace that. Uh, but sometimes you need a lot of people on the streets to remind people in power to take action. One of the things that I'm trying to do in that, that final chapter when I go like, okay, if I have been saying all along, don't generalize about victims don't generalize about perpetrators or bystanders even that were there but then you also have these other people these observers how come we cannot really generalize about everybody should be engaged, but it would be really good if we do not universalize all these emotions and feelings, because very often it is related to emotions and feelings. I mean, the, the the example that I use in the novel, the final novel that I'm analyzing is also one of the characters is a woman who is in Paris, a French woman who is in Paris and during an anti-Vietnam demonstration and meets this Indonesian refugee and because she meets that indonesian refugee and falls in love with him she gets involved, of course she does, then, because then it some, becomes something uh, personal. It's somebody else in France not necessarily did that. The ties between France and Vietnam are different than the ties between Indonesia and France.
0: Jump in, because we now have a couple of questions. Montserrat Fernandez says, Congratulations, Paulina, definitely very interesting topic and a brave approach. But she asked whether there was some other issue or question that you wanted to consider but we're not able to because of lack of information. Something for the next research. I guess it's back to that conclusion question, where <laughs> can we go from here? And another question from uh, Johanna Massa, how you conceptualize your research agency in a conflict situation that goes beyond the dichotomous oppressor-victim framework and highlights the gender dimension, and how does the memory dimension influence this?
1: Well, if we take the first question, what would I like to continue with? There are issues related to memories of, well, that that is actually getting back to being a political scientist again. I would find it really interesting to look at memories of politicians and diplomats and how they could or could not work with issues like this because what they could and couldn't raise. And there was just no time and place to do that in this particular study. So really going to my politics around that.
0: The memoirs and the oral histories, perhaps.
1: Yes, and perhaps also looking at newer conflicts and seeing how people that are still alive can talk about that today. And then there was a question about agency and memory.
0: How are you conceptualizing your research agency, going beyond the oppressive victim framework and highlighting the gender dimension? And how does the memory dimension influence that?
1: My agent, God, that has changed over the years. Definitely. If I say this was a process of mourning, it has also meant a lot in terms of how I think about myself in relation to different parts of the world, relatives. It meant, in a way... During this talk, I try not to be too uh, academic, but, but you can talk about decolonizing your mind, see the, the implications of a colonial system upon me, have, and then seeing how can I think about myself beyond that, has been really influencing me. Why connecting to, if you want, to my Indonesian roots, but then at the same time being very careful about what I can and cannot say and how I can use the privileges that I have and where I could see my own privileges in a different mm-hmm. way than when I started this out. And this is a lifetime struggle, more or less. But but uh, that has been part of working on this book. I think that that is the shortest answer I can give.
0: Yes. <laughs> That's an excellent note to end this uh, conversation on. Really, really interesting. And uh, you're rather modest, I think, Paulino, about what you've done with this book. But it's really a very, very ambitious and interesting project. And it takes us off in so many different directions. So it's an extremely provocative book in terms of getting people thinking and uh, getting us to reflect on ourselves and who we are and, and what we're doing in this world i know you spent quite a long time working on it but the fruit of the the labor is there it's a really important and, and interesting book so i hope that uh, going forward we'll be inspired to uh, first of all to do more things along those lines and those who haven't had a chance to, to look at the book yet please uh, do take a look at it and think about, and I'm also thinking about can I finally get round to connecting my real interest, which is novels, to what I've been making a living out of doing, which is studying politics. I've been trying to square that circle for quite a few years now and, and making me think I should I should absolutely find a way to go there too. So everybody may take a different kind of inspiration. Now we're getting more questions, but we decided that we would keep this short and sweet. So anyway, we, want to, we, we can't uh, hold our glasses up, uh, literally. <laughs> this is a launch and it's a celebration and there's a lot to celebrate with this book uh, so many very interesting things going on here and a fantastic job all and we're really delighted to have had this chance to have this conversation with you today
1: thank you and yes thank you so much and and thank you everybody who listened as well i'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity at least
0: you have been listening to the nordic asia podcast